0: So, uh, congratulations, you completing your first day of uh, full practice. It is an achievement. It's a lot, particularly for those of us, there's a number of us here on a first retreat. So, um, I'd like to begin today by a dedication to Hugh Gill a man who lived early in his life with a lot of pain and then found his heart, transformed his life, and dedicated to his very last days to be a service to all beings. It was one year ago today that he passed, and I'm also dedicating this to Nancy, his beloved wife, his support, his love, who has such great kindness and humility, inspiration to all of us. He was the type of person who was involved with the AA, and even up to his last days, he was on the phone counseling and mentoring people. This was his life, to be of service to others. A really beautiful example of turning your life around and really devoting it for the betterment of humanity. So tonight I want to speak uh, about the first foundation of mindfulness, the body. But I also feel like it's important to... um, speak about the larger picture of why are we practicing with the body, and of course the other foundations of feelings, mind states, and the dharmas. There's a context that is um, a context of why we practice. So I'm going to offer a bit of a, a broad in sweeping background, just so that we have a better, bigger picture, and then more specifically get into the body. But I also want to just acknowledge, for many of us here, and Mary Grace referred to this earlier, whether we've this is our first retreat or we've had many, the first day is the first day, and. Um, Going into the swamp, as has been mentioned. So this is dedicated to all of us in the swamp, and this is from Hafiz. This speaks about um, being in a swamp. It's called for three days. Not many teachers in this world can give you as much enlightenment in one year as sitting all alone in your closet for one, two, or three days. That would do. That means not leaving. And you better get a friend to help you with a few sandwiches in a chamber pot. No reading or writing in there either. That would be cheating. The sitting alone, though, is not recommended if you're normally sedated. But please, don't let Hafiz fool you. There is a ruby buried inside here. Don't let Hafiz fool you, there's a ruby buried inside here, and perhaps as we sit, we will begin to discover our heart. All of you have come here with great courage, vulnerability, to sit with yourselves, to be honest. It's very wonderful. Wonderful. And we know for many of us, um, our first day or so may, may not be so peachy, rosy, creamy. And of course, we could have at certain points, moments of the breath coming in and out, just lovely, and the next moment somewhere else. Bhakti Gunaratana, he writes that somewhere in the process of meditation, you'll come face to face with a sudden realization that you are completely crazy. And that your mind is a shrieking madhouse on wheels barreling down the hill and utterly out of control. Does it sound familiar? <laughs> but he goes on to say, it's not a problem. You're not any crazier than you were yesterday. You just haven't noticed. So it's important that we have a sense of levity in working with ourselves. And Mary Grace uh, referred to... Um, A beautiful quote uh, last night about even if your mind went off every other moment and you brought it back, your hour would be well employed. It's a very beautiful way of helping to train ourselves. Hema children. she speaks about training a dog and she says, you know, you can get a dog to roll over, stay, come, lie down. You can get it to do those things in a very fearful manner. And the dog will do that. But it will also be neurotic and confused. And by contrast, you can get the same dog or a different dog to roll over, come, stay, and so forth by training it with kindness and it will end up being more flexible and confident. That sounds a little better, doesn't it? Yeah. So I really want to um, invite you and in how if you're holding your practice. Can it be done with a compassionate and a kind way. Not easy as it is, but sometimes it just ends up in this subtle aggression, or actually at times not so subtle aggression, even self-improvement that we bring to the meditation that wraps our lives in a knot. What about treating our practice with a sense of kindness? Not easy to do, but notice as we become present... What is the flavor that's happening here? Is there a sense of um, judging and criticizing what we do? Is there a sense of saying, all right, come on, bring it back? How we hold ourselves in the practice? This practice reveals to us where we get caught, where we get stuck, where we're grasping, where we're feeling aversion So in many ways this practice is revealing to us the nature of our mind and how it works. From this perspective whatever comes into experience can be an important teaching. So just a few of those reminders of our attitudes of how we hold ourselves and practice and the invitation can we begin to Uh, hold it with a greater sense of compassion or kindness, friendliness, whatever word that makes sense to you. So I want to um, offer a broader perspective of why are we working with this practice of mindfulness, with the body, with the feelings, mind states the dharmas these four foundations of mindfulness so I'd like to actually tell you um, the story of the Buddha and his awakening it's actually very auspicious because in two days it will be the full moon actually at 12.25am and it actually the farm's almanac it's called this particular moon is called the full flower moon Very nice name, full flower. And it was nearly 2,600 years ago on a full moon, on three different full moons, that uh, Siddhartha Gautama, who later became the Buddha, was born. He was born in Lumbini around the year 623 B.C., at the age of 36, under another full moon, he attained enlightenment in Bogaya. In the age of 80, he died in a full moon in Kusanara. And so it's very auspicious that this uh, retreat is being um, on the time of the full moon of May, which is the thrice-blessed day in Buddhist tradition of the birth, enlightenment, and death of the Buddha. But what I love about the Buddha's story is that it's a human story, one that actually at times when I speak about it, I get emotional. Because it, it reminds me of, maybe perhaps I guess it's emotional because it reminds me of me. And in the sense of, what is this life? What is this life? Jane Kane writes, I got out of bed on two strong legs. It might have been otherwise. And I ate cereal, sweet milk and a ripe, flawless peach. It might have been otherwise. I took the dog uphill to the birchwood and all morning I did the work that I loved, and at noon I lied down with my mate. It might have been otherwise. And we ate dinner together at a table with silver candlesticks. It might have been otherwise. And I slept in a bed in a room with paintings on the walls and I planned another day just like this day, but one day I know it will be otherwise. One day I know it will be otherwise. A Blackfoot chief, his name is Crowfoot, and this was his allegedly last words before he died. He says, what's life? It's like the flash of a firefly in the night. It's like the breath of a buffalo in the wintertime. It's like a little shadow which runs across the grass and loses itself in the sunset. So at the age of 29, Siddhartha Gautama, which was the Buddha's name, ventured out of his palace after living a very sheltered life and came across four messengers sometimes referred to as the heavenly messengers. These were powerful observations about the realities of life that shook Siddhartha Gautama to his core. And of course in those days uh, he had everything that any young prince would have and all the latest gadgets and whatever. And uh, and his his father uh, wanted him to become a great king like himself and so he lived a, a fairly sheltered life. And he was also, the king was also a little bit uh, wanting to keep it sheltered because he was warned when Siddhartha was born, some astrologers came in and you know three of them said he'll become a great king, but one of them said, no, he's going to leave the palace and become a Buddha. And the king didn't want that. As the story goes, in his 29th year, he ventured out of the palace and he came across the first messenger which was a person that was very bent over, very old. and when he asked his uh, charioteersman chana who is this person he said this is a, an old person. if you live long enough you, you you'll get old like this. No one can escape from aging. This very much shook up Siddhartha Godutaama. he went on a few other outings and came across a person very ill and then realized, understood that no one can escape from illness. And then he came across a corpse, a body, dead. And China said to him, that's right, no one can escape death. These were very powerful realizations that um, Siddhartha Gautama realized about life, that it was not going to last. That there was aging, illness, and death, that none of us could escape from. He ventured out again, and he saw one last messenger, which was like a, a wandering holy person, very calm in their manner, their gaze more inwards and outwards, and they emanated a type of feeling that Siddhartha Gotama had never experienced before, never met anyone like this before. And when asked, who is this person? John of the Charity chairsman said, this is a person that's dedicating their life to awakening, to understand what is the meaning of life. And things began to uh, come together within Siddhartha Gautama and realized if it's all going to go, that seems like the most normal, that's the only thing that makes sense as to what is this life. It's actually described in uh, Pali language, which is the language of the early Buddhists, uh, the type of uh, state of consciousness that he experienced upon this realization of aging, illness, and death, and then this messenger of of possible awakening, dedicating one's life to awakening. And that one word—it's a very powerful word. <laughs> it's called "samvega," and "samvega" is um, sort of like an like a paragraph in English to explain it, but it means. When you have the realization that death can come to you at any moment, it catapults you into a sense of spiritual urgency to understand what is this life. And he had that some way of consciousness big time. And the story goes that he traveled to different teachers, was a great student, learned, mastered all of their different teachings, and many of them said, Now you can come by my side and teach with me, but still, Siratha Gautama did not find um, the answers that he was looking for. Then he got involved with practices of self-mortification. It was believed that if you really uh, suffer with the body, perhaps then you can get your awakening. And so he took on the practice of, of fasting and as little food as possible, and it said that he came down to one grain of rice a day was his diet. And he got so thin that when he touched his tummy he could feel the backbone. And at the brink of exhaustion, fatigue, and very seriously collapsing and potentially dying, he realized the futility of these extreme practices of self-mortification. And realized this has to be a middle way. He left this small group of um, five ascetics of self-mortification and began to restore his health and decided that uh, he had been with so many different teachers and teachings and did all these self-mortification practices and there was no other place to go anymore and that he took a resolution that he was just going to go to this big, beautiful tree and he's going to sit underneath this tree that there was nowhere else to go and he was going to take his seat and, and stay there and practice and see for himself with his own direct experience and it said that through the night his concentration and steadiness of mind and heart grew and of course there was times when um, there was this being some say uh, like a celestial being others might say more of a psychological aspect and I think we certainly know uh, the psychological aspect of Mara, of temptation, of, oh, you know, you don't have to practice or get so scared or get enticed. So Mara was getting kind of nervous because Siddhartha Gotama was really getting deeply concentrated. And so he began to cast his armies of fear at him. And when Siddhartha saw these armies of fear coming towards him, He said to Mara, I see you, Mara. It's a very beautiful expression, I see you, Mara, I see you, fear. And in those moments, those arrows, in a metaphorical way, turned into flowers. Mara was angry and then came on charging with temptation, with seduction. And again, Siddhartha Gautama said, I see you, Mara, and the seduction drizzled away. Throughout the night, Mara charged with his armies, but the Buddha, Siddhartha Gautama, was steadfast. And it said in the third watch of the night, Siddhartha Gautama awakened. Now, actually, it's very interesting to know that the word Buddha means awakened, as Jason mentioned yesterday in the refuge. Now, this awakening, of course, is possible in any one of us. But underneath this Bodhi tree, the Siddhartha Gautama awakened and became known as the Buddha, or the Awakened One. And what did he awaken into? He awakened into the truth, the great realization that there is indeed suffering, this pain, this birth, this death, this separation, this being around uh, situations that are difficult and painful. The second great realization, the noble truth of the cause, of suffering. This is very important, that there is a cause, what the Buddha realized, and the cause, its base is unawareness, is ignorance, not seeing clearly, and it manifests itself in grasping or craving. And it speaks about this type of a craving that's compelling and intoxicating. It gives us birth into things again and again and again. Namely, the craving for sensual delight, The craving to be someone and the craving to feel nothing. So the Buddha began to penetrate into these causes. The craving to sensual delight, like we're, we're trying to find some happiness outside of ourselves. All of these cravings are rooted in a deficiency. Somehow outside of myself, I can get something that will delight me and then I'll be satisfied, but the only trick is it only lasts for a while and I have to get something else. I've mentioned this a few times. Some of you may have heard this, the story of my, me eating my favorite di Cutie ice cream. And I was given, in satiation land. I was in sensual delight. But then all of a sudden I realized there was just one bite left.
1: <laughs>
0: and what the hell was I going to do with my life now? <laughs> I could go get another ball. But I didn't. But I just saw like that, that sense of the delight... And then the ending of that, the light, and then the desperation to fill it up, to be fulfilled. And then, of course, there's this compulsion, like, I want to be someone, I'm Bob, I'm a meditation teacher, I drive a Prius. I teach MBSR, I, 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 yay wanting to be someone. How much pain has that caused us? Again, rooted in deficiency. It's from that country western song, I'm looking for love in all the wrong places. How do we know that longing to be someone? Now, I don't want to also paint the other side of like then it's like, oh, I'm a worthless piece of nothing. Both of those are rooted in deficiency. The the grandiose, I'm special to I'm not special. And how we get caught in the sense of deficiency to want to be someone in such a cause of pain. Last aspect is that wanting to feel nothing. How much of the time do we want to just not be here? Zone out. Get wasted. I remember, it was actually a year ago, this retreat, I was sitting with the possibility that my older son may have had lymphoma. And um, I noticed while I was in the retreat, I actually gave a talk on this, And I was talking about the wanting to not feel anything. And I never related to that uh, type of feeling before until I realized on the retreat, all I wanted to do was sleep the whole time. I just didn't want to be here, because when I woke up, there was the reality, does he have cancer? Fortunately, he had mono. I love mono. (laughs) (laughs) Mono's my favorite illness. (laughs) Not that I would wish anyone to have mono, but compared to lymphoma, I'll take mono any day. And so the sense of not wanting to feel something is very powerful, very striking. And so the Buddha taught in the third great realization that once you become aware of these cravings for sensual delight to be someone, to feel nothing, that are all rooted in unawareness and deficiency, that there is a way to ending or lessening that suffering through lessening that grasping, that unawareness. And the fourth great realization really is the path, is the way to its lessening and cessation. You'll hear probably more about these in the next few days, the Eightfold Path, but shortly said it's a path of really pointing to how we can live our lives with integrity. The integrity that helps support the steadying of our mind and heart that is the cultivating conditions for potentially deeper insight to arise into what's understanding, fueling, and driving our own suffering, our own pain. And so, for this understanding to grow into the causes of suffering and its lessening, we work with the practices of mindfulness. As Mary Grace was saying last night, it's perhaps one of the most direct ways of liberation is through the practicing of awareness of mindfulness. And particularly in the last hundred years, there's been a really profound revival of mindfulness practice. My teacher, who was a venerable Tungpulu Sedo, a Burmese forest monk, and he studied with his teacher, Una Rada, who was also known as Mingum Sedo. and Mingum Siado. He was. Uh, this was like about a hundred years ago. He was traveling throughout Burma. He had learned all the different theories of practice, but hadn't really met anyone that had done real meditation practice and applied the theory into practice to equal realization. And somehow, in his wanderings and his travels, he ended up in some remote regions in Upper Burma, and there was some alleged uh, hermit monk that was living in some cave. And he had heard that this person knew something. And so he met this cave-dwelling monk, and he asked him about realization, and he's been seeking and seeking, and the monk said to him, "Um, you don't have to seek anything outside. It's all right here in the four foundations of mindfulness. It's right here in the four foundations of mindfulness. Mary Grace was saying yesterday that You know, seven years, six years, five years, one year, months and weeks, and up to seven days, the possibility of awakening. So I'm wanting to do this sweeping picture of why it brings us to the foundations of mindfulness, and particularly tonight I'm going to speak of the body. It's also very important to note that each of these foundations that we'll be um, practicing and speaking about are very interrelated, just like a mind and a body and a person and a shadow. These are just different aspects that we're bringing light of attention to, and that they all are interrelated. So I'd like to just uh, recite a very beautiful um, words from the Buddha, from the Samyutta Nikaya. He says that within this fathom long body—a fathom is a maritime measurement, it's about six feet long—so within this fathom long body, with its thoughts and emotions, lies our world, its origin, its cessation, its pathway to freedom, to nibbana, to freedom. Within this fathom-long body, it's not outside of the body, within this body lies our world with its thoughts and emotions. So this practice of the foundations of mindfulness begins within the body. Mary Oliver has a very interesting poem called The Body that I'd share with you. She says, Bless the fingers, for they are darting as fire. And bless the little hairs of the body, for they are softer than grass. Bless the hips, for they are cunning beyond all machinery. Bless the mouth, for it is the describer. Bless the tongue, for it is the maker of words. Bless the eyes, they are the gifts of the angels, for they tell the truth. Bless the shoulders, for they are the strength and shelter. Bless the thumb, for when working it has a godly grip. Bless the feet, for their knuckles and their modesty. Bless the spine, for it is the whole story. Our history is here inside our body. Martha Elliot says that your history is here inside your body, and your body is your storehouse of all of your learnings and thoughts and experiences. Only waiting to reveal its treasures to yourself. History is here inside our body. So within the foundation of the body, the Kayagasati, mindfulness of the body, is actually six distinct practices and we've been working actually with three of them already. The first is the mindfulness of breathing. We've been cultivating that since last night. We become mindful of the different postures, sitting, standing, walking, lying. <clears throat> we become mindful of the different Activities of uh, of our lives, of the eating, the showering, the all these different little things, the work, um, yogi jobs, all part of mindfulness. Bringing mindfulness into the day to day activities. These three are most commonly taught in meditation centers in the West, and a lot of the times in the East as well. But there's three other practices that are not taught as often, but yet they are very important practices, and I thought that I should at least let you know about them. And I actually happen to be very fond of these practices. These are like my buddies. And so um, these three other practices are called the 32 parts of the body meditation, and a meditation on the elements, and then a meditation on death. So maybe I'll speak a little bit of the 32 parts of the body. And first of all, you're probably wondering, what the heck are the 32 parts of the body? So here you go. (laughs) It's composed of um, 20 solid parts and 12 liquid parts. And in the solids, there's four groups of five parts. And in the liquids, there's two groups of six parts. So the parts are head hair, body hair, nails, teeth, skin... Flesh, sinews, bones, bone marrow, kidneys, heart, liver, diaphragm, spleen, lungs, large intestine, small intestine, stomach, feces, brain. And the liquids, bile, phlegm, pus, blood, sweat, fat, tears, grease, saliva, mucus, oil of the joints, and urine. Quite a group. (laughs) Now, we might want to ask, why 32? Because there's way more than 32 parts in the body. And so... In the commentaries in the canonical literature, I really have not been able to find out why. But my rationale through uh, having practices for many, many years, that it makes sense to me that each of these parts is like an ambassador, a doorway into the body. For example, um, you know, my wife has diabetes, and um, the pancreas is not mentioned, but when We meditating into the abdominal area, she naturally gravitated towards the pancreas, since that's the maker of insulin. And so, the these parts are like ambassadors or doorways into the body. And um, why these parts and why this order, I really don't fully know, and the commentaries don't really mention a lot. But there seems to be some sense to it. For example, the first five parts are the parts that when we look around the room, this is what we see when we see people. We see head here and body here, fingernails and toenails and teeth and skin. That's what we see when we look at each other. And then the next grouping is of kind of like you unzip the skin and you get flesh, sinews, bones, bone marrow, kidneys. But then we go, well, what does the bone marrow have to do with the kidneys? Well, it turns out that the bone marrows are the blood uh, producers and the kidneys are the blood purifier. So like, huh, that's kind of interesting. But we still haven't figured out the arrangement of why feces is next to uh pus. Now, actually, large intestine, small intestine, stomach, feces, brain. So why is the feces next to the brain? We don't know, but maybe we do. <laughs> so much for our
1: thoughts (laughs)
0: did the Buddha have a sense of humor or is there something there (laughs) but anyways these practices can evoke a lot in our lives and I've been working with this practice for many years as we sit with these parts different feelings get evoked I remember one woman meditating on head hair and then a memory arose within her she was reflecting on her head hair of stroking her dying grandmother's hair our history is here Inside our body. Our body is our storehouse. There's two ways to work with this practice. The one that's most commonly known in the texts, and being that this is more of a monastic practice, was a practice of helping to curb passion. In a lot of younger monastics that are still very alive, and so they actually put Kind of a lens on this practice, and it's actually, you may be kind of shocked when you see some of the language that's used, the loathsome, repulsive aspects of the body. And so that's pretty strong language. And here in the West, I think the last thing we need is to hate our bodies more than we already do hate them. (laughs) And I also, you know, I want to acknowledge that it may be useful for some people that are really wanting to work with their passions. But there's another way to work with practicing this that is is related to insight, is to begin to penetrate into the body, into its true nature. And this is the way that I have been very um, fond of working with in this way. So, for example, the true nature of the body. When we begin to go into the body, let's say, for example, head here. What, what is head here? It's actually from a medical dictionary standpoint. It's that red-like outgrowth from the skin of... Mammals thin, flexible shafts of hardened cells. Its protection, it, its function is to help protect the top of the head from sun and, and uh, from ultraviolet light. That's what head hair really is. But how many of us, after we've come back from the, the, the salon, the haircut, like, oh my God, my hair. You know, sometimes my wife comes back, I hate it. And I say, you remember, honey, thread-like outgrows from the skin of
1: your <laughs> She just
0: wants to punch me in the nose. <laughs> I'm picking on my poor, beloved, dear chan. But we can see that the sense, like each of these parts has functions, like bile, like, ooh, who wants to talk about bile? But if you didn't have bile, you would not be able to, uh, you know, with your digestion to help emulsify the fats in, in your intestines. The heart, for example, a hollow muscular contractile organ at the center of our circulatory system, it pumps 300 quarts of blood an hour. It pumps 60,000 miles of blood Every day through the vascular system. So, we work with this practice to penetrate into the body, into what, what its true nature. So, in some ways, we can say this practice helps to break some of the spell of enchantment. You know, we look on these magazines and commercials, it's like, you know, we've got to look this way and all the pain that is generated and caused. And it's actually it's just talking about the head here hardened cells protruding from the head, you know, thin, flexible shafts. That's what it is. But yet, there's a whole World, a billion dollar industry on cosmetics and looking this and that way, and the suffering that it causes rooted in such deficiency. We also want to say, not paint a negative picture about the body, that this is the body that we awaken in. We don't awaken in another body or in some fairyland. It's in the vehicle of this body. So in some ways, with the the 32 parts of the body, there's also the recognition that this is the vehicle that we live inside of to the pathway of awakening and, and to honor this body with love and kindness and compassion, but also perhaps getting more sober and breaking that spell of the enchantment that's rooted in this deficiency. We also begin to work with this practice and beginning to penetrate into this body and begin to discover whose body is it anyway. There's um a teaching in early Buddhism called the Living with the Many. And actually this has been very much verified. Uh, there's actually a recent article in the New York Times magazine last weekend. The living with the many is all of these different organisms that live within the body as well. In the New York Times, this is I just copied a piece of this from the articles last Sunday in the magazine. And this writer is saying, I can tell you the exact date when I began to think of myself in the first person plural as a superorganism rather than a plain old individual human being. It happened on March 7th. As part of a new citizen initiative called the American Gut Project, the lab sequenced my microbiomes That is the genes that are not me exactly, but of several hundred micro species with whom I share my body with. These bacteria, which number around 100 trillion, are living and dying right now on the surface of my skin, my tongue, and deep in the coils of my intestines, where the largest contingent of them will be found In share numbers; these microbes and their genes dwarf us. It turns out that we are only ten percent human.
1: <laughs>
0: Every human cell that is intrinsic to our body, there are ten resident microbes. It's very powerful. You think about that. I think we're all human, and actually, it's just ten percent. <laughs> There's a lot of guys living in here. My teacher, Tom Cluseito. One time when he came to the United States for three months, he decided to uh, offer us a teaching for 81 straight nights on the 81 different families of organisms that live on your body. And so one night we'd be with the organisms that live on the tongue, then on the eyes, and the ear, I mean, it's all over. 81 straight nights. And he always ended with a poem. And the poem goes in Burmese, Poem, Poza, Pudo, Pubo, Puta, Godi, i Todan, Tinjain, <Spanish> And what that means is these organisms, they eat of the body and they pee and they defecate in the body and then they copulate and have offspring, and then they gradually grow old and die and thus your body is a cemetery. And, and then we go on to the next one. The next one. it going on for 81 straight nights. So the body. Which body are we talking about? body makes a new stomach lining every five days, a new liver every six weeks, replaces head here two to five years if you still have some, eyebrows every three to five months, new skin once a month, a new skeleton every seven years, 50,000 scales will be replaced by new cells by the time you listen to this sentence. Radioactive isotype studies show that the body replaces 98% of its atoms in less than one year. So in other words... In any given moment, the parts of the body are appearing and disappearing because they are composed of atoms. So if you think you are your physical body, which body are you talking about? The body you have today is not the one you have yesterday and tomorrow. And perhaps the same could even be said of the mind. The sense of self is a mystery to neuroscientists. Where is the self to be found? Rick Hansen writes in The Buddha's Brain, from a neurological standpoint, the everyday feeling of being a unified self is an utter illusion. The apparently coherent and solid I is actually built from many subsystems and sub-subsystems, and over the course of development with no fixed center and the fundamental sense that there's a subject of experience is a fabrication. A myriad of disparate moments of subjectivity. The practice of the 32 parts deepens the sense of where is the self to be found? Is it in the head here, the body here, the nails, the teeth, the skin? As we grow in this practice of the, of the 32 parts of the body, it naturally leads us into the elements. In the teachings of the Dharma, there's four primary elements and the secondary elements and other elements. The main point is these four primary elements that exist in all matter. And what it's said is that there's solids, liquids, motion, and temperature. And so for a moment, let's just take a pause and, and see if we can experience these elements. And so bringing awareness into the nose... And as you breathe in and breathe out you will feel a contact point, a sense of touch. That is the element of solidity. And as you breathe in and out many of us there's some wetness that's Often found in the nose and sensing into the wetness, and that is the element of liquidity. <clears throat> now sensing into the motion, the breath comes in and the breath goes out. sense of the element of motion. those first three elements together motion liquids solids it generates heat the last element of temperature breathing in through the nostrils and filling the breath is cooler and then it goes into a 98.6 degree organism and the breath as it's breathed out breathed out is a little bit warmer so feeling that sense of coolness of the breath as you breathe in in the nostrils and the warmth as you breathe out. And these elements are found within the body and they're found in the natural world. The floor that you're sitting on is a solidity. The liquids within the plants, the streams, the oceans. The movement of the winds, the movement of our ability to move our limbs, to walk, to bend. The workings of digestion. The working of the heart. Speaking motion. Found inside the body, found in the natural world, and of course the temperature within the body and the temperature within this world. As this practice deepens with the elements, the sense of separation begins to dissolve. We are all part of this terrarium that the particles that make up this body are particles that are found here and everywhere. In the sense of separation is a misconception. Albert Einstein, he writes, a human being is part of the whole, called by universe, a part limited in time and space. And we experience ourselves and our thoughts and our feelings as something separated from the rest, and this is a kind of optical delusion of our consciousness. This is Albert Einstein. Optical delusion of our consciousness, and this delusion is a kind of a prison for us, restricting us to our personal desires and to affection for a few persons nearest to us. Our task must be to free ourselves from this prison by widening our circle of compassion to embrace all living creatures and the whole of nature in its beauty. We experience ourselves, our thoughts, and feelings as something separated from the rest. This is a kind of optical delusion of our consciousness and this delusion is a prison for us. So as we penetrate into the elements it gets blurry a sense of separation between ourselves and the natural world. We are part of it. The elemental point of view. The last practice in the body is the mindfulness of death. Maranasati. Sati. This is a very graphic um, practice with nine different contemplations beginning on the first day of death until the body turns into dust. And it is quite graphic, like worms infested, oozing, stinking. I, I won't go too much more. But I, I often wondered to myself, why, why did the Buddha... That's a pretty amazing meditation. (laughs) Oozing, stinking. But then there's this Hindu proverb and it says, everyone thinks everyone else is going to die but not me. And then like, uh uh-huh, I could maybe relate to that myself. And so this practice of the mindfulness of death awakens in us the fragility and the preciousness of this life. And... You know, t- bringing back this whole circle again why we are practicing this because Siddhartha Gautama at that age of 29 when he realized it's not going to last this is what brought him onto the path what is this life? where am I caught in my suffering? how can I free myself? this is why we're using these practices to grow and deepen to purify our hearts so I'd like to um, tell you a story I know some of you have heard it. But it's a good one. I love it. I hope I remember it on my last breath. So I had the wonderful opportunity to um, live in a Chavaritan forest Buddhist monastery for eight and a half years. And I got very close to my teacher's i like to just name my beloved teachers, Tungpulu Sero, Lain Sedo, Pakoku Sero, and Rina Sirkar. And Rina Deepaus, so she's the one who really brought me into this practice of insight meditation. I got very close to Lain Sedo and I lived with him. He was at the monastery the whole eight and a half years that I was there. Tungpulu Sero would come back and forth and Pakoku Sero would come back and forth. Lain Ditsero I got to really hang out with and for whatever reason um, I, I, he was like my father I loved him he died at the age of 98 but maybe 10 years ago and um, he, he, Lionel Sero was not uh, a very charismatic type there's some types of monks or teachers that they're very charismatic you, know, you see that I mean like they just... You're like, whoa, who's that? Linus was actually the opposite. If you walked into a room, you might not notice that he was there. Kind of just blended in with the furniture. And it occurred to me one day, as I turned and looked, like, wait, like who is this guy? Because it was kind of like the opposite of charisma. And he was so utterly... And I mean... Utterly contented with who he was, he could just be fine just sitting in a room in his chair. He didn't need to be known. Didn't need to. Be, he was the opposite of wanting to be someone. He was no one. And and it wasn't that he was also. He was simple and kind and mischief, mischievous in some way. Very humble. I would notice, like, when we'd we, take the monks out house chanting to different places, and Linus Sato, oh, he was the eldest monk at the time there, and said, so the, you know, the eldest monk sits in the front seat, and the young monk sit in the back seat, but Linus Sato oh, never would assume that he was to sit in the front seat. He'd always just kind of go to the back, room. no, 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 Sato, oh, you, you need to sit here. And he did this repeatedly, like, he was just so incredibly unassumingly humble, and not a sense of self-importance, not a sense of self-dread, that word, degradation, <laughs> something like that. And um, there's times where at night I would massage his feet. He'd be sitting in his chair. And I could communicate with him. Uh, he knew a little English, and I knew some Burmese and Pali, and we would actually communicate between these three languages. But more often, Sero was a very silent monk, didn't speak much. But his presence in his being was extraordinary. And I would often just massage his feet late into the night, and um, we wouldn't say anything. And I can remember it's just so many nights just being transported, just listening to his breath that transported me deep into the forest, just contentment, at ease with his being, and invited that place to be the ease of my own being. one night I had the opportunity to um, to sleep um, in the same room with him. I was giving up my room for a monk. And at that time, Linus said oh, would often just take rest in the chair and wouldn't lie down. It was a comfortable chair but I always kind of wondered what what, is, what does he do? What does he do at night? So I had the opportunity to be lying on the floor. His chair was right there and I was like, uh, it was like Christmas Eve to me. It was like, oh my God, I'm with my shadow. What's he going to do? I can't wait to see what's going (laughs) to happen. Does he sleep? What does he do? What What does this go on? And so... I, I, I fell asleep, and then I, I'd wake up in the middle of the night all excited, and I'd turn to go look at him, and, and he'd just have his eyes and just be looking at me smiling. <laughs> and so this happened two or three times, and then I said, okay, um, I'm going to turn on this side intentionally so that he's right in front of me now, so I don't have to turn over to go see what he's doing. So I just <laughs> kept my eyes closed and waited quite a while. I think I even fell asleep, and then I just slowly just opened my eyes, just a little teeny, teeny, wee bit. And he was looking at me, smiling. I couldn't believe it. Who was that guy? I don't know. He was something. And I think, if anything, you know, we speak about the Dharma and all this. He was very knowledgeable of all this. But the legacy that he left was kindness and love. That was what it was. It was love. It was love. That was the legacy. The last time I visited him, I was I went to his monastery in Burma, and I was going home the next day, and uh, I had one more question to ask him. And I was leaving the next day, and and then, and it was likely that I would never see him again. And it turned out that that was true. I never did see him again after that. 9 came about and uh, it was, just, it was just hard to get back to Burma at that time and so I never got back to see him but I had one last question for him and I asked every question I could ever imagine to him but this was I had one more and this question was oh, what are you going to do when you die? So I asked him this question because you know he was a monk for 70 plus years and meditator and I wanted to get some teachings on death. What are you going to do? And he looked at me for a really long time, and then he smiled, and then he asked me a question. What are you, he says, Baba, you afraid to die? And and it, and it caught me off guard because I was asking him what he was going to do, and he said, he saw that I was like, Ugh. and then he looked at me and said, you got to meditate more. <laughs> That's true, said but I was, I was thinking he was going to tell me and he's asking me if I'm afraid. And um, so I, I, sat with that for a while and then I asked him again, said, oh, what, what are you going to do when, when death comes knocking at your door? This would be, I, I would love to hear what, what, what you're going to do. And so then he said something to me that I'll never forget. I actually even told this to my grandmother when she turned 100 and she said to me, Bobby, he's actually a pretty wise man. (laughs) She's like little Jewish woman from Russia. (laughs) It it made sense to her. So what Sero said to me was that if I see something, I'll be mindful of seeing. If I hear something, I'll be mindful of hearing. If I smell, taste something, I'll be mindful of those. If I feel something in my body, I'll be mindful of sensations. If there's mind states arising, feeling tones that are arising, I'll be mindful of those. This is how I'm going to die. This is how I want you to die, with awareness. And it was a... I wasn't expecting that. I aspire to, also in my own life, to die with my heart open. With full awareness. Why not? Life is incredibly interesting. Let's check out death, too. I say that right now when I'm, when I'm, death is not knocking at my door. And, and um, you know, some years ago I, had, I nearly died of a flesh eating bacteria, necrotic fasciitis, and was told that uh, you'd have to have emergency surgery. It's possible that I could die, possible that I have to have my leg amputated. Fortunately, I'm here to tell you the story with a leg. During that surgery I had taped to my chest a Buddha. I asked the doctor, Since you're doing down there, can I want to have this right here? The doctor said, All right, I was very grateful. Bruce is <laughs> <laughs> one of them. My dear friend Bruce and of course a surgeon. Having this in my heart, let me see what's here. Yes, it was intense. they also the context of the practice to hold them open to this. So coming to an end here that within this fathom long body with its thoughts and emotions lies our world its origin its cessation its pathway to freedom within this fathom long body So maybe I'm going to just end with one other poem that I feel like a real practice poem. And I think is a beautiful teaching here that I just want to share with you. It's called Allow. So I think in some ways the practice of mindfulness, one aspect of it, one facet, we could really boil down the instructions to just simply allow. Be present, be here, experience, allow. Whatever is here. So this is from Dana Falls and it's called Allow and says, there's no controlling life. Try corralling a lightning bolt. Try to contain a tornado. Dam a stream and it'll create a new channel. Resist and the tides will sweep you off your feet. Allow and grace will carry you to higher ground. The only safety lies in letting it all in, the wild and the weak, fair. Fantasies, failures and success, and when loss rips off the doors of the heart or sadness veils your vision with despair, the practice becomes simply bearing the truth. In the choice to let go of your known way of being, the whole world is revealed to your new eyes. Resist and the tides will sweep you off your feet. Allow and grace will carry you to higher ground. Let's just sit for a minute and allow. May all beings find the gateways into their own hearts. May we dwell with peace.